A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello again, my friends, the time travellers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me. Uh, otherwise, it would be ever such a lonely journey to do all on my own. Um, I know, or I get great comfort from knowing that there are so many people out there uh, who share my um, appreciation, I suppose, of history and what it can do for us. That apart from being a, a, an endless library of, of fascinating, tragic, uplifting informative, moving stories, it also serves as a resource of human experience. And in times of trouble, uh, in dire straits, I say it's worth looking back at what happened to people in the past when they were confronted by some of the same challenges. You can see what they got wrong, you can see what they got right. At the very least, you can reassure yourself that some of them survived some of them came through to the other side of the war or the plague or the natural disaster or the political incompetence or the tyranny you can see that people find a way through the woods so that's why I do this and that's why it's it's a delight to share it with others of like mind curious inquiring people with questions they want answered so uh, I just want to say thanks to everyone who shows their support by subscribing to my patreon.com site. The, the financial contribution from there makes possible everything else that Paul and I do together on here. Uh, the love letters have always been and always will be free uh, on account of uh, the support from the Patreon presence. Uh, from behind the, the velvet rope of the Patreon site, you get access to weekly vodcasts, two or more questions and answers, special editions, uh, monologues where I run off at the mouth about whatever's been getting up my nose or up my back this week. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to be, just go to uh, patreon.com, uh, look, search for me by name, follow the instructions, part with a little bit of cash. Uh, you can go monthly or if you buy in for the year, uh, there's a saving. Uh, that you can take advantage of there uh, become part of the family you don't just have to listen to me uh, it's a community of shared ideas now it's time to get back to the history of the world so strap yourselves into the time machine recorder, microphone and action a tiny sect amongst countless others the small fellowship of Jews watch their leader die on a wooden cross they believe he comes back to life three days later. Their claim goes on to form the foundation for a religion. Outliving the mighty Roman Empire 
and spreading across the planet. It went on to change the world in every conceivable way. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In the last episode we stepped outside the historical chronology of the series and met Steinleif and Primo Levi in Auschwitz. Where are we this week? Hi Paul, uh, well the quick answer is we're back, we're back on track, we're back in the familiar chronology. Uh, we'll pick up the story in AD 33 uh, when the Roman Empire is still well and truly running the show in most of Europe, North Africa and into the East and into Asia. In this episode, we're zoning in on an extraordinary group of people marked by the resilience and strong survival instinct who became the cradle and early nursery for Christianity and a man who would change the world. At this particular point in the story of the world, the love letter to the world, well, it's one of the biggest figures of all time that we're going to contemplate. It's the death and birth of Jesus Christ. Um, Depending on your point of view, maybe the single most influential human being that has ever walked the face of the earth um, has changed the lives or shaped the world for billions of people. I don't think there's any disputing that, regardless of your stance on religion, uh, monotheism and, and faith and all the rest of it. His brief time walking upon the face of the earth changed everything for a lot of people and continues to change the world for for people to this day. And it's an illuminating story in so many ways and it's worthy of a, a pause for thought. Let's just say that. I, mean, I, I don't know what, what, what religious viewpoint people watching and listening have, if any. Uh, but the, I think the significance of of this individual cannot be uh, underestimated, really, regardless of your stance on on faith and on Christianity and and on anything else in the religious realm. It's interesting when you bring it back to an individual person. We so often just think of religion, but when you talk about it and you bring it back to a person and you suddenly realize wow i think it's i think that is what makes it extraordinary these these figures that, that, that there have been jesus christ um muhammad for islam uh buddha the buddha siddhartha gautama confucius uh Lao Tzu, these individuals that have uh, if not religions in every case, you know, in the case of Confucianism and in the case of Lao Tzu and the Tao, they're not religions, maybe so to speak, but they're ways of understanding your place in the cosmos. And and yeah, they do. They come back. It's amazing that they come back in each case to an individual, without whom, you know, one one. I mean, what you know, Mervyn Peake said, "To live at all is miracle enough." It, it, the absence from the picture of just one of those would mean that the world now would be unrecognisably different. If you were just to absent one or more of those figures from the story of the world, then everything is different forever. And that's before you get into how much, if anything, you believe of the stories that are told and the faiths that are maintained around those 
those individuals and what they actually did. You just cannot get away from the fact that these are single individuals. But then this has been, I think, part of the story of the world. It is individuals that have made the difference for good or ill. So much has turned on the behaviour. If you look back on, on history, Adolf Hitler, Napoleon Bonaparte, Julius Caesar, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, um, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, individuals who did something, said something, stood for something, and, and without any one of them, flesh and blood individuals, the, the world becomes unrecognisably different. In the case of Jesus, there's so many things that are remarkable about that story. When you boil it down to uh, basics, the world has the shape it does today because a handful of Jews said and believed that their leader had died and come back to life. That's what it boils down to. And that their idea survived them the, the people who followed Jesus, men and women, uh, in his lifetime and then in the aftermath of his death, let's say, and or his resurrection, they, they were a tiny sect. They were a tiny group of individuals among many in that part of the old world, in that territory that we've, that we've come to understand as the Holy Land. They were just one of a number of sects. Uh, you know, who were all rubbing along beside one another, sometimes each other's throats, sometimes having a certain amount in common. All these disparate groups of people numbering just tens or, or dozens or, or maybe a, a few hundred people. And that, that this particular sect survived. It took permanent root and it spread to become the biggest religion on the face of the earth. It, it's extraordinary. I mean, they, they didn't just survive the Roman Empire. They didn't just survive the might of Rome that for a long time cared not a jot about them or indeed sought to root them out and get rid of them. But the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, they not only survived Rome, but their message established the biggest, most influential monotheism that the planet has seen so far. And then when you broaden it out, obviously Christianity came out of the, the, the cradle, or it was cradled by the Jewish people. You know, Jesus was a Jew, and his, his message and his, his idea for the way people ought to live together was rooted in the Jewish tradition. And, and the people that followed him were fellow Jews. And the, the survival of the Jewish people is similarly extraordinary, similarly impressive. A, a, a people more put upon by fate and by history, it would be hard to imagine. There was a heyday, there was a there was a high point. I mean obviously you've got the, the whole story of the Old Testament and you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, which are the basis of the or part of the basis of the Jewish faith. When they come back out of Egypt and back into the into the promised land, into Canaan and, and then with taking root there, there's a there's a heyday around 
the 10th or the 11th centuries BC and you've got the kings, Saul and then David and then Solomon. It was Solomon that commissioned the the Phoenicians uh, to come and build the first temple. So there was a time, there was a time then where the Jewish people and Israel dominated their own territory and they were big enough to dominate their neighbours. But it was was a very short-lived dominance. 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes out of Babylon and conquers the territory that's Israel and he he carries off a chunk of the population. No one knows how many. Maybe some of the aristocracy and some of the influential people and who knows were carried off into, you know, Babylonian exile and slavery and they were kept away from... From the, from the promised land, from Israel. And, and yet the, their survival seems to have been rooted in a, a state of mind that evolved, that crystallised amongst those people. You know, rather than just crumbling and being crushed by, by fate and a self-pitying you know, belief that it was all over for them, the very fact that they were being so put upon, it became their central belief that there was one God and that as long as they kept faith with that one God and endured, endured whatever befell them, ultimately they would be blessed by this one God. And so there was this belief that they acquired that there was a grand narrative and they were the point of it. Their story was the story of the world. They were the, the key characters that everything else was about. And it enabled them just to, to keep on going. So some of them are taken away to Babylon and into exile. But it, that doesn't last for long. Babylon itself falls to the Persians under Cyrus the Great in 538 BC. Uh, and the, the Hebrews, the wandering people, were freed to go home. They were freed to go back into Israel. Uh, And they did. At least some of them went back. Maybe they didn't all go back. Maybe some of them stayed behind in in Babylonia for whatever reason. But some of them go back. They build the second temple. But the heyday is behind them. They don't get back to that time of the kings, David and Solomon. They're now directly under the dominance of of stronger people and empires. Or they've got troublesome neighbours. You know, they've got uh, Persians, of course. Then there's the Ptolemies, which that's the dynasty that comes out of after Alexander the Great dies. One of his generals is Ptolemy. The same Ptolemies that take Egypt, you know, when Alexander's empire fragments. So there's the Ptolemies. Then there's the Seleucids. And the Seleucids are also descendants of, well, they're, they're, they're Alexandrine. They're a consequence of Alexander the Great. They're, they're there as well in, in the vicinity There's always fire, there's always passionate belief in themselves, in who they are. They are the star players in this grand narrative. Between 167 and 160 BC, there's the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, Antiochus IV was a Seleucid king, one of the Seleucids, Alexandrine dynasty. Um, He wanted everyone, he was Hellenistic. He had taken on that way of the Greeks, of of the classical Greeks, and he wanted the Hebrews, the, the Jewish population under his control, to take on Hellenistic ways. And those Jews said no, they were having none of it. 
that was always key to their determined uh, uh, perseverance, their stubbornness in the face of oppression. They pushed back during the Maccabean revolt and they pushed back so hard against Antiochus that they actually secured a kind of independence. There was a kind of a rapprochement established, you know, just to put them back in their box. They obtained a degree of uh, autonomy that lasted for the best part of a hundred years. But then around 63 BC comes Rome. The new sheriff in town, Rome comes in and, and dominates the whole territory. But, but nonetheless, the Jewish people, uh, you know, they maintained they maintained at all times their faith. Pompey, who was the Roman general, who was supposed to deal with Julius Caesar but couldn't. Uh, but, but, but prior to be falling before Caesar, he conquered Jerusalem. But then he himself, you know, was overwhelmed by the progress of Julius Caesar. So in the last decades before Jesus, the Jews, the Jewish people were all over the ancient world. Not necessarily in great numbers. I mean, never necessarily a particularly numerous people. Because they always, they kept to themselves. You know, they, they, they married in. You know, they, they married within themselves. But nonetheless, they had spread as merchants and traders and, and craftsmen. They were all over the ancient world. And quite often in that old world, in that ancient world, the ways of the Jewish people were appealing to those they had landed among. Quite often, their faith in their own grand narrative, that they believed that they were the point of the story of the world, it, it was kind of infectious. And other people, other peoples around them, took it on. Because, apart from anything else, they seemed to have internalised the idea that their suffering was for a reason. It's a powerful way to operate. You know, they knew that they were, they were often under the cosh. They were often oppressed. They, they, they were often under pressure from the people they were among. They were outnumbered and kind of outgunned all the time. But the secret of their endurance was this idea that their suffering had a point. They weren't suffering for no reason. Their suffering was their reason. So that keeps them going all the time, makes them able to endure whatever's going on around them. Herod, everyone knows about King Herod, he is made a puppet king by the Romans. He's Hellenistic as well in his, in his kind of appetites and outlook. Uh, he's made king in Israel 37 BC and he does his thing, the, the things that are there in the New Testament, he slaughters the innocents. He's a cruel individual. He dies, he's succeeded by his sons. They're ineffectual. They're not, they don't make any kind of a mark. And then finally, around 6 AD, now we'll, we'll get to the birth of Christ in a minute, but by around 6 AD, the whole territory becomes part of, it's swallowed by the Roman province of Syria. And around 20 years after that, so by about 26 AD, there or thereabouts, Pontius Pilate is made procurator of Judea. He's the, the CEO. He's the, he's the managing director of, of that part of the Roman Empire. For people that remember the story of the British Isles, local legend has it in Fortingall in, in Glen Lyon that Pontius Pilate grew up in its shadow, that his father was a Roman figure, a soldier serving out his time in that part of Scotland, married a local woman, 
had at least one child, Pontius Pilate. And, and legend has it that Pontius Pilate grew up in the shadow, metaphorically and literally, of the Fortingal U. And then his, his father was repatriated to Rome and Pontius Pilate went with him with his mother and then in due course he becomes procurator of Judea so there are those people in Scotland who who claim that, that Pontius Pilate hailed from that part of the world By the time of Pontius Pilate it's safe to say that Judea that was the name of the territory in, in question was troubled and uh, it, was a, uh, it was confusing to Rome the Romans couldn't couldn't come to terms with the, with the Jewish people for, for a variety of reasons. And religion was certainly part of it. The Roman religion was syncretic, which is to say that underlying everything, they believed that th- there was a sort of a commonality about religion. They, they were prepared to believe that there was a, a truth and that all sorts of different people in different places had tapped into some of the truth. And so they were quite um, accepting of the ways that other people were doing things. And so, for example, also in the story of the British Isles, we talked about Bath, the hot water that comes out of the ground at Bath. And the the, the Iron Age people that, that were already in awe of those hot springs, they believed it was the home of a goddess called Sulis, who was, as far as they were concerned, was a goddess of well-being and health and, and wisdom. And when the Romans arrived in that and they, 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 it was the only place in the Roman Empire that water hot enough to bathe in came out of the ground so that place was a wonder to the Romans as well it, it, they revered it and when they listened to the to the Britons describing the goddess Sulis it occurred to them that it reminded them of their own Roman goddess Minerva who was in charge of the same area health and well-being and wisdom and so they invited the locals to think that there was a fusion and Bath for the Romans was called Aque Sulis Minerva the waters of this kind of combined goddess who was both Sulis and Minerva at the same time so this was typical of the Romans approach they were quite happy to you know get along and, and find ways in which they could blur the boundaries religiously between themselves and other people this was part of the secret of their success but the Jewish people wouldn't wear it it was their way or the highway they just wouldn't contemplate or tolerate any kind of mixing of their faith they they had to remain completely faithful to their own understanding of what was going on so that that undercurrent was always the Romans just couldn't understand it they couldn't understand that kind of stubbornness and that unwillingness to, you know, live a little. So this was the the world into which Jesus was born. Bizarrely, uh, as far as we can tell, he seems to have been born about 6 BC, (laughs) which is ironic. He was born six years before the birth of Christ, but it has to do with changes to calendars and counting systems over the years but in any event there's no accurate there's no it's a best guess around that time six years bc obviously the 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 accounts of his early life are in the gospels matthew mark luke and john and the first three matthew mark and luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're kind of all the same they they give more or less the same version of events with you know some things missing some things added in but it's believed that the the Synoptic Gospels were written by second-generation Christians. John, the fourth Gospel, is believed by scholars to have been a bit later. 
uh, it may not have been written until the end of the first century AD, because it's quite different in its content and in its style. That's where we get the information about his arrival and his ministry and, and all the way up to the crucifixion and the aftermath of the crucifixion. So the Gospels are not written by people who had anything to do with Jesus directly. Paul, though, St Paul, he was a contemporary. The belief is that he was born pretty much at the same time as Jesus. They were about the same age. Paul was a Pharisee, which is a sect, a version of the Jewish faith in its own right, um, and opposed they were traditionally opposed to Jesus and his followers. And to begin with, Paul pers- took part in the persecution of followers of Jesus Christ. It's generally, well, there's a possibility that he even witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen, you know, one of the early followers of, of Jesus. But then, famously, he converted. He has his, his moment on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him in the form of a voice that he hears in his head and a bright light that kind of blinds him. So he has this moment... Uh, and, f- and forever after, he's a, f- he's a follower of Jesus. His version of events is different. He doesn't talk about the nativity. He doesn't write about a manger or a stable or, or the shepherds or the three kings or the star or, or any of that. He barely quotes a word of Jesus, actually. And the, the thinking is, or, or that might be explained by the fact that um, Paul was so close to that time of, of Jesus himself that he possibly felt that he could take for granted that the people he was talking to and writing his letters to knew what he was talking about. You know, it, it was you know common knowledge, so he, so he didn't he didn't have to go into it because his audience were already aware of Jesus and, and who he had been and where he had come from and what he had said and what he had done. So he was he, he was able to take all of that for granted. All that Paul really says about him as a man is that he was born and that he was crucified and that he rose from the dead. So let's see what we do know is that Jesus was born into a, a kind of a fractured, febrile, uh, high-tempered, hot-tempered world of, of cults. Small groups of people. It's like in, uh, you know, in Life of Brian, you know, the popular front of Judea and the people's popular front of Judea. Uh, you know, they're, they're all more or less believing the same things, but they, they, they're arguing over, over the, the most petty details. A bit like that. Valuable information turned up in Israel's West Bank in the 1940s in Qumran with the discovery of the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that added a lot of colour because they come from a world that was contemporary with Jesus. And the people of that community at Qumran who wrote those scrolls and then hid them in a cave were probably close to the Sadducees, which is another fractured bit of the whole story, another group. Uh, And the Sadducees believed passionately in the coming of a messiah and a messiah is a hebrew word for a a deliverer a savior so the the sadducees uh, you know believed that someone was coming that was going to create the kingdom of god on earth so that's part of the atmosphere as, as well that jesus is born into it seems credible that he was born into a family on the downslope from better days uh a family with possible connections to the royal house of david Saul, David and Solomon. He may have been, seems reasonable to believe that he was in that line. And the reason that that's credible is that when, when he was crucified, when the Romans put him up on the cross, they went to the trouble of putting a sign on the cross 
written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew that here was the king of the Jews. And not even Jesus' enemies bothered to dispute that. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't take the sign down, they didn't challenge it. Uh, so it seemed likely that there was some kind of truth in that. In any event, if they had been you know, part of an aristocratic line, those days were, were over. And, and, and you know, the, the family were on much harder times. In his adulthood, when he's about 30, he's baptised by John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist may have been a cousin. He may have been part of the same immediate family of Jesus himself. John may have been part of that Qumran community that put together the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are amongst a few vague uh, facts or, or, or assertions that, that we have about who Jesus actually was. What was unique about his message? His message was pretty simple. It was rooted in the Jewish faith. You know, he, he certainly wasn't calling himself a Christian. He was from within. He was, he was embedded within the Jewish faith. And his message came out of the Jewish tradition. But what he did say that was different was he promised forgiveness and eternal life for Jews and for non-Jews. For Gentiles. Now that was a twist. He was saying that his message was for everyone. It wasn't just for people who were born into the Jewish faith and into the Jewish tradition. He was saying that there was a way to live that guaranteed God's forgiveness and, and the promise of eternal life, life after death, for everyone. That was, that was a USP, that was a unique selling point. You know, a, any, a suggestion of life after death was in, no, no one had suggested it before. There might have been a possibility for it for a very few, but promising life after death was huge. And it was life after death from, for the poorest to the richest, for men, for women, for Jews and non-Jews. And that, that was a very significant selling point, you know, for people living desperate lives, hard lives, the idea that when they died, you know, the inevitability of death, that if they lived a certain way and, and took on board the simple message of Jesus, that they could live forever in the presence of God. This message, it annoyed other groups, influential groups, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and others. These were, there was a class element to it as well. These were, these were people within the Jewish tradition who regarded themselves as of the better sort, intellectually and socially and all the rest of it. And they had high opinions of their own status. And here was this guy, Jesus, who was hanging out with the poor and the, and the underclass and the put-upon and the homeless and the diseased and the lepers and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, he was, that, was, that was where he took his message and he was promising those people, outcasts, some of them, you know, he was promising them eternal life and God's forgiveness, you know, and, and, and preaching to them that they, they mattered as much as any Pharisee or as much as any Sadducee. And that was controversial stuff. It had enough of an impact during the brief time of his ministry, which was about three years maybe, that he was accepted by a lot of these people as the Messiah. Uh, for, for enough people, he ticked the box and he was accepted as the promised, long promised saviour, you know, who would come to see them to the end of days and to the establishment of, of, of God's kingdom on earth. Um, of, 
Famously, you know, as 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 it as it features in the Gospels, there's the Sermon on the Mount, which is controversial stuff. I mean, when you when you get into the Sermon on the Mount, you very seldom people that go to church would tell you you don't you don't tend to hear many people ministers and the like preach from the Sermon on the Mount. Consider the lilies how they grow; they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, King Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? You know, this message that don't don't worry about don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about any of it. Be faithful to God, and God will take care of you. God will clothe you. God will feed you. If he's going to take care of the flowers of the field and the grass of the field, will he not take care of you as well? That was a powerful, potent message to give to the poor, to reassure the poor and the unwanted that they would be all right, that God would love them, regardless of who they were. And it ruffled feathers. I mean, he he was a controversial figure. His first sermon really was that he had come to cancel everybody's debt. You know, a lot of people were were in debt to Rome and and to their betters and their, their social superiors. And Jesus was going in there saying, follow me and I'll free you from your debt. And a lot of rich people were looking around going, who's this guy? Who? What? What did he say? Get me some wood and some nails. And he, 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 he was so troublesome for them that it was just easier to have him killed. And so his fellow Jews persuaded the Romans to crucify him. It was just easier to get him out of the way. And that was supposed to be an end of it. But of course, of course, Jesus rose from the dead. In Paul's writings, St. Paul, he doesn't mention a tomb. You know that whole bit about, you know, the, the shroud and the and the tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea and the rolling away of the stone and, and Mary going in and finding it empty, all of that. That's that's the Gospels. That's not, Paul, who was alive at the time, doesn't mention any of that and has a quite different approach to it, actually. He didn't describe a flesh and blood Jesus coming back with wounds, you know, that you could touch in his hands and in his feet. Paul's whole piece was about transformation. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So he he died as flesh and blood, but he returned as something of the spirit. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam which is Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. So Paul's message is different. It's more mystical in a way than the idea of you know, Jesus coming back three days after his crucifixion as a flesh and blood human being. For Paul, it's more about the fact that he's been transformed from the incarnation from the flesh and blood into something else. played into the way that the Jews had thought for the longest time. There, there was a belief in resurrection within the Jewish faith, but but it was tied up to the end of the world. There was a belief that there would be the end times, there would be a, an apocalyptic, climactic battle, and then and God's kingdom on earth. And resurrection was part of that bigger story. So the, the Jewish faith was already awake to resurrection, but under particular circumstances. And for Paul, for St. Paul, the idea of Jesus resurrecting was a foretaste. It meant for Paul that if Jesus had come back, then it must be the end of the world. 
The end of the world must be imminent. This was the start of resurrection. Paul and the rest were able to go out into the wider world and they sowed the seeds. They spread that message. They told that simple story. And the fact is, and the moment that matters, is that it changed the world for billions of people. It changed the world for billions of people. Someone who was born in poverty and died in ignominy, his message changed the world for more people than anybody else. And that's certainly a moment. Rhymes, rhythms and repeating patterns of history. A brilliant Greek historian and a theory of political evolution called anacyclosis. Caught in the violent storm of Roman conquest, writing from the heart of history, his theory solidifies as the wheel of history turns. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, Sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Allthorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 